Hallelujah. Yes, Father, as we have just sung and now as we turn to your word in moments and even as this season unfolds with opportunity to consider the magnitude of what was required and what was accomplished in the gospel to make the promise of this song a reality that God would dwell with sinners, them having been redeemed and atoned for by the blood of the God-man Christ, the second person of the Trinity, becoming flesh and crucified in our place. I pray, Lord, that the effect of our remembrance at the communion table as we open your scriptures, as we celebrate the incarnation this time of year, and as we sing these songs, is that we would treasure all the more, not take lightly or for granted, but live instead in the glorious light of the heaven and earth that were moved by the only one who could do so, the Savior of the world and the creator of the universe, to make possible the reconciliation and salvation of sinners, that we might stand in your favor, in your presence, with our sins atoned for, worshiping Jesus Christ for what he has done to make all this possible. As we turn to another book, and the glorious canon, the letters that you have written to us of love and care for your church, I pray today that the message to Corinth would ring in our hearts and that the hope that Paul proclaims, we would also proclaim to ourselves, our families, and that those you lead us to as well, that as we grow as a church and join other churches, Lord, in the common cause, making Christ's name great, that the world would know as the testimony of faith goes forth that Jesus Christ is Savior and He is Sovereign until such time that the glory of our Lord and Savior covers this world as the waters cover the sea and you return for a church once for all, cleansed, sanctified, without spot or blemish by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this time and this opportunity. May you be glorified, dear Jesus, in the proclamation and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what a great gift and opportunity we have today to turn to the scriptures together and to worship the author of these words as the Spirit inspired them for the early apostles like Paul to write down for the benefit of the church, not just at the time of the writing, but 2,000 years or so later for ourselves today. Today, our first Sunday of the month is our communion Sunday, and I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians as we open up a new book which will provide for us the text for a series moving forward once a month as we study the letter that Paul wrote to the early church in Corinth and what it holds for us and what it proclaims of Christ. So the title of this morning's message, just to introduce this book, is Dear Corinth. This title reflects the fact that it is a letter and it, it has a recipient, and that would be the early church in this area that Paul writes. The aim of this morning's message is to introduce 1 Corinthians by way of Paul's first audience. And we, of course, by extension, are his audience as well. Paul addresses his letter to the church. With that introduction, and with your hearts and your uh, standing in reverence for the Word of God, would you rise with me for the hearing of God's Word today? Let us consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-9. through 9. Hear now the word of God. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Well, we read nine verses in opening this letter, which serves as Paul's introduction before he addresses specific issues in the verses that follow. We'll consider primarily just two of these verses by way of introduction today, in which Paul sets forth, I submit, the ideal of the church. Verses 1 and 2 are a good description of what the church is and a good standard to hold ourselves accountable to. So explore in four points today what that might look like. Paul introduces his letter to the Corinthian church, holding up God's standard and the definition, or the essence, if you will, of what it means to be the body of Christ. His affirmation and description of the church, the essential church, are both inspiring and foundational. They uh, should motivate us to become more like the description that he opens his epistle with. And also, they are foundational to the enduring, uh, or to the enduring nature and to the effectiveness of the church as she is called to show forth Christ and to honor him in the day and age in which we live, just as it was the case at the time of the writing. He draws the attention of his readers to the glory of God revealed through the body of Christ or the church, which he institutes, has instituted, has established, and upholds. Everything that follows in the letter, so this is just an overview, a note of structure, everything that follows in the letter by way of exhortation, instructions for change, rebuke, calling out sins in the local church, encouragement, this is how you are to live, correction, and so forth, is with reference to this description at the beginning of the standard and goal of the church. The church of God is to be sanctified. She is to be established in Christ Jesus, and she is to be unified in every place in that common cause of glorifying Him. So we see here this positive greeting thus of Paul's letter, would serve to reassure the church in Corinth of their calling and legitimacy. God has a purpose for them, and they are a church, even though they have problems, that is legitimate. Despite the challenges that they faced within, and there were a lot of them, and without, there were a lot of them outside the church as well. This congregation had many issues. Paul addresses them in most of his writing. But how encouraging would it be at the beginning to get this affirmation that there is hope that you will be sanctified and that you as his called church, as you work through these issues, you will be more effective and and step more and more into the calling that God has for you to shine in this corner of the pagan world. Paul's heart for the church is magnified by the context and historical background that occasioned his epistles His letter to the Corinth, two of them, in fact, we have recorded, are no exception. And one thinks of Paul's own long suffering, quite literally so. He suffered much in his own body and 
uh, challenges, sacrifices that he made in his missionary efforts. So this demonstrates Paul's care and his heart for the church, but also the difficulties that the churches themselves struggle with demonstrate Paul's long-suffering as well. His heart and his patience truly are extraordinary. The problems in Corinth and other places were serious. He wrote to address them, and they would appear, I suggest, overwhelming to a man of lesser faith. Uh, you know, let's just cut our losses, as somebody just pragmatically analyzing the circumstances might say. You know, this church, as long as there's people who, you know, call themselves members of this church that are marrying their, uh, that are committing incest and adultery all in the same act, and then the church isn't stepping up to call it out. As long as that is the case, let's just cut our losses. Let's go plant a church in Macedonia. You know, Corinth is a lost cause. The reprobation of that area is just not sufficient to sustain a work. You can see people or having that kind of response, discouragement, given what was faced, but that was not Paul. Paul's patience with this church uh, most certainly was inspired, I suggest, from his own experience. Paul had experienced the long-suffering of Jesus Christ and the life-changing power of the gospel. He was a dramatic example of this. And so the self-described chief of sinners did not soon forget his own obstinacy or rebellion against the Lord before he was saved. And I'm sure it was this and the Spirit giving him grace in the present that motivated him to call the church to repentant obedience to not to give up on her, and in so doing to point her to her Savior and Lord, the same Savior and Lord that interrupted his journey on that old Damascus road and said, how long will you kick against the goads and then pulled the scales spiritually from its eyes so that he might see Jesus Christ and his calling to spend the rest of his life dedicated to share the news of hope in Christ alone. Let me just give you a heading and four aspects of the church we might learn from these first two verses today. Paul addresses his letter to number one, disciples. Number two, the local assembly in Corinth. Number three, the church universal. That'd be the church everywhere where the body of Christ, Christians gather. And number three, the church united, the church of common cause and goal under Christ. First of all, Paul addresses his letter to disciples. A little thought experiment for you. Um, I saw a meme earlier this week. Someone said, if Paul were alive today, we'd be getting a letter, something like that. America, if the Apostle Paul is alive, you know that our, the church and our country would be getting a letter. There's probably some truth to that. A little thought experiment, what might that letter contain? Well, certainly Paul, as he did here, I'm sure would address specific challenges, cultural and systemic sins, uh, things that, are easily, that we would easily be deceived by because it's just the life we were born into or it's considered normative in the world of today, right? And one thinks of a lot of those things in American context. However, I suggest that one thing could be exactly the same. And what would that be? The vision for the church that Paul lays out from the very beginning. Paul writing to us in Cross Lake today or to the church in America in the modern age, he could just as easily say to the church of God that is in Cross Lake, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's a universal statement. It always applies. It holds forth the ideal and establishes what the church is from the beginning of his letter. 
it gives us a measure to repair to, to repent to. So Paul's words thus remain the standard of the church, both its identity and its calling that we can take today. And thus, if we know legit, the legit true church, as Paul lays it forth, no matter, what, um, no matter what areas we might fall short, we can certainly apply his words, in our case, just as in Corinth, they were a helpful, they were a helpful guide for them to repair to the standard of God's call. Firstly, as I mentioned, he writes to disciples. What are disciples? Well, you've heard the definition, perhaps, learners under discipline. But let me extend that to say, Paul writes to those who are under his apostolic authority. So a disciple is one who is under authority. And in the relationship of Paul to the church of Corinth, it was one of apostle to disciple. Verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Why does he mention him? Turn with me to Acts 26. And let me just give you some context. The church in Corinth, by the way, had been planted some time before this. Paul had done a lot of work and effort there. Historians surmise, reading between the lines, some 18 months of hard cultivating of the gospel in this region. And Paul's efforts and those who served alongside him to create a beachhead for the a word of God in this unlikely area. Well, anytime you spend a year and a half with somebody, they get to know you. And the church was not probably huge, but this small number of disciples, of called ones, of early converts, had no doubt heard Paul's story. Paul's not shy about sharing his testimony. Whether it was a church at Corinth, as we imagine, or standing before King Agrippa, he would often recount what Gene preached to us from in Acts chapter 9, his conversion experience. And when we take in context his call as an apostle, his conversion experience, it gives some weight to his writing. In Acts 26, uh, we pick up on some of Paul's testimony in this regard. Verse 13, At midday, O king, Paul's testifying before Ro Roman rulers here, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. This is a companion text to Acts 9. Paul's recounting those moments where he was overwhelmed by the sovereign power of God, and he was called to be a missionary and so forth, and anointed as an apostle. So this light, brighter than the sun, it shone around me, and those who journeyed with me, verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. As I understand it, goads were sharp implements on a cart or something, when you hitch up your oxen, you want them to go forward, so you make it painful if they try to go backwards. They would kick against those goads. So Paul, metaphorically, was doing this. He was going backwards. He was not following God's will. He was uh, in rebellion against Jesus Christ. He was persecuting his church. And here is his day of reckoning and accounting, where Christ himself reveals himself in person to Paul and calls him to repentance. Paul says, verse 15, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appointed you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then he, he goes on, addressing his appeal now personally in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And by the way, this happened on multiple occasions. Paul says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God, 22. So I stand here testifying, both a small and a great saying, nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. This is both the testimony and the profession of an apostle. Notice there was a supernatural calling. Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul on that day of reckoning on the road to Damascus in such a way that Paul became fearful for his rebellion against the Lord. And he himself repented and then dedicated his life in service to his king and to his savior. So that now, no matter the challenge or difficulty, no matter whether it's a temple prostitute who had repented in Corinth or the king and ruler and governor of this region in the Roman Empire, Agrippa, he was going to share with both the message that Jesus Christ is the savior of king and pauper alike. And so in this context then, you can see the weight that Paul's words bear. He writes to those who are under his apostolic authority. He writes also not just representing himself, but another man named Sosthenes. Why does he include this individual? Another cross-reference that may be helpful in Acts 18. So turn back just a few chapters and notice an event that happened in Corinth. This is uh, Acts 18, beginning in verse 12, when Gallio uh, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, Is it a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews? I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of things. He drove them out of the tribunal. So in context here, Paul's enemies are not able to get a hearing through the civil law courts at this time, right? So what do they do? They take matters into their own hands, 17. They all seized who? Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So this likely tells us that Sosthenes, whom Paul, we presume, references again in our text today, was an ally, that he submitted to the apostolic authority of Paul and the message of the gospel that he bore. And Sosthenes, like Paul, paid a great price for his dedication to the gospel and his standing with Paul. We assume in refusing to turn him over to the mob, Sosthenes was beaten for his faithfulness in this regard. So thus, when Paul himself, knowing his story, both his supernatural call and all he suffered to bring this letter, joins in addressing this church alongside Sosthenes, another early convert in this region who is beaten for his faith, now imagine how much weightier the words are that followed. In uh, the Council of Nicaea, 318-ish, there were bishops, leaders in the church that gathered to address issues that threatened the true teaching and orthodox 
orthodoxy of the church from the known world at the time. And we are told by the historians that many who gathered there bore scars on their face. You could easily tell who had been, cruci- or who had been you know, uh, persecuted, identified with the beatings of Jesus Christ in their own testimony of faithfulness to Christ. Their master who was crucified provided them the motivation to endure scourging and burnings and abuse and whipping and torture and so forth. And imagine if you're there gathered and you see the marks and scars of persecution on the faces of these who had suffered for the name of Christ, how much more weight you might consider their testimony to bear, both inspired by the Holy Spirit, a called apostle, and secondly, coming at the expense of great personal suffering. In Paul's case, shipwreck, stoning, and the abuse that he suffered at the hands of the magistrates, false accusations, mobs, riots, many days weary from long distances of travel without sufficient food, and many times uh, you know, fraught with robbers and difficulties and all kinds of unimaginable risks along the way. Paul writes to those who understand that what he brings to them is a word that is very expensive. When Jesus Christ proclaimed to us the gospel, and then <clears throat> he laid down his life as a payment for sinners, when he hung on that cruel cross, bleeding, crushed, bro- broken, pierced, and bruised for our transgressions and iniquities, those with eyes open to our sovereign and our Savior hanging there, how much more weighty would his words now appear? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for they shall be blessed. Now, seeing Jesus suffering in our place gives so much weight to his words. We realize in our, uh, in our experience now the cost that was required to bring them to us, and now they appear that much more valuable. I take this time to set the stage in context for these words coming from one like Sosthenes and from Paul and Jesus Christ, because we, this is an area of repentance for us today, We live in an age of absolutely instant access, cheap information. Everything's available for free on the internet. But listen, there is in this great toxic waste soup of information available online, depending on the source, there are absolute treasures of gold and precious stones, if you will, of the wisdom of God insofar as they represent the word of God and the word of God applied. Realize the cost that these scriptures required for them to be written down, preserved, and delivered to you. Sosthenes suffered whippings and beatings. Paul, at great expense and shipwreck and sword, brought this message. And Jesus Christ himself, above all, suffered that we might be transformed by his word. Paul addresses his letter to disciples. Who are disciples? They are the ones who with fear, reverence, and great gratitude realize that the Bible comes to them at great cost and that these words, therefore, are precious and should not be taken lightly, but should be considered with weight and written down not only in book form, but on the tables of our hearts. Secondly, Paul addresses his letter to the local assembly. Paul called by the will of God to the apostles of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to a local gathering of the church where? In Corinth. A bit about Corinth provides uh, weight to this as well when we understand the historical context. 
Paul writes to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus in this port city, uh, which is really the high watermark by some historians' estimations of paganism in the region. I don't know if you have a map of Greece in your mind, but if you did, on the southern part, there's sort of like a, almost an island portion that's connected by a narrow strip of land. Uh, some of you kids, geography students, can you tell us what a narrow strip of land is that connects two larger land masses? Extra points if you get this one. A peninsula? A peninsula? So, so close. Imagine a peninsula that connects two other portions of land. Uh, adults, can you give us the answer? Isthmus, thank you. So imagine there's this area and an isthmus, and then what that supplies then is a port area on both sides. So Corinth was a hub of activity. Ships would come in and they would leave. People from all different regions, wealthy merchants and so forth, would gather there. Now a little bit to the south in the town, there was a great temple that was famous, for, uh, and the goddess there that was celebrated was Aphrodite, and she, or something like that, she was a goddess of love. And they thought it was a good idea to commission like a thousand temple prostitutes. So if you wanted to have favor with the goddess of love, you wanted good romance in your life, you might procure their services. And you could do so with all the money that you had just earned by trading your goods at high cost to the merchants in the port city. And then you could partake in all the libations of that area, the drunkenness, the revelries, and everything else immorally that was going on, complete debauchery. Things were so bad in Corinth and had such a reputation for sin in this regard that even in the original Greek language, a word uh, kind of transliterated Corinthianized or Corinthicized or something like that was developed. And this was basically a word that referred to this region to describe hedonism, drunken debauchery, sinfulness that was enabled by wealth. And so that's what, that, this is the area that Paul then was called to reach or that this church existed in. The Corinthians, therefore, were a test case of the cultural and historical challenges that faced the church. Paul himself was quite the test, test case. He was an exceptional, exceptional example of how God can change a hard heart. And so Corinth was an exceptional example of how God can plant a church in the most wicked areas. It was an unlikely beachhead for the faith. The early church uh, was nevertheless establishing an outpost here, but given the wickedness of the society, this was a dramatic thing indeed, and the stakes were high, and the challenges were not insignificant. The city had a reputation among all of the empire of those uh, who would uh, just live lawlessly and partake of all the sinful, uh, all the sinful offerings that the society had to boast. Not to mention this, additionally in the church, Paul was writing to address division, abuse of the sacraments, worship disorder, theological problems, and moral chaos. Corinth, therefore, and here's my point, primarily in this section, serves to illustrate the atoning power of the blood of Christ, given the darkness that the light of the gospel overcame in the hearts and in the society of the repentant in that area the church Paul writes to is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The power of the gospel can sanctify a church in a place as wicked as Corinth. What does sanctify mean? There's a number of meanings in the scriptures of sanctified, generally speaking, to make holy. One commentary says it this way in this use here. Sanctify is to purify internally by reformation of soul to purify internally by reforming the soul. 
There was a sanctifying work that was going on in Corinth in spite of the wickedness that surrounded it. This sanctifying work, as we mentioned before, comes at a high cost. And this cost, although Paul shared in the sufferings of Christ, ultimately and substantially is the sufferings of Christ himself. Would the blood of Jesus prove powerful enough to save a people in this wicked city? Would his broken body prove sufficient to atone for their sins? The answer is a resounding yes. And after a few moments, as we partake in the Lord's table, we will refer to this very book, which we always do on Communion Sundays in chapter 11, where Paul instructs the church on how he was instructed that the body and blood of Jesus represented in the elements at communion illustrates the high cost of their redemption, something the church then and now needed to remember. Consider the overwhelming power of the gospel in light of the challenges we face today. Perhaps you've thought our society is growing so wicked that we'll soon be like Corinth, and good luck for the church surviving under those conditions. Look to this book to give you encouragement, no matter how wicked things get. And here's another personal application. Consider areas of your life, sinful areas of your own life, that have yet, that where you are tempted to entertain darkness. And consider how the gospel will sanctify those by the word of God. Consider areas in your life where you have given over to the wickedness of this area. Perhaps there was a temple prostitute who was saved out of a life of selling herself and what God calls as sacred to the cause of this, you know, a sinful idol worship. And how might that transform her? What might sanctification look like? This is the kind of redeeming power of the gospel can actually achieve. Rahab herself in the line of Christ was a prostitute once, but no more after she met those who were sent uh, of God's people. She repented of her life of sin and became incorporated into the people of God. So that's an extreme example when a prostitute gets saved. But the other day on a more simple note, our three-year-old Hugo, I don't often use my kids as examples in messages, but he, he'll never remember this. He's still too young refused to put his shoes away in his cubbyhole in his uh, locker. And so Nikki said he had to do it. And he said, of course, no. And there was a knockdown, drag out battle of wills that ensued that lasted quite some time. Later that evening, Nikki told me how she used the opportunity to give the gospel to her three-year-old. The reason you don't want to put your shoes away is because you need to be sanctified. Because you're a sinner, you don't want to obey and honor your mom and dad. So from a simple, you know, discipline opportunity for a three-year-old that refuses to put his shoes away to a temple prostitute that has violated the commandments of God and earned great money for it over and over again, this is the range of the transforming power of the gospel. Who are we? We are the church in Cross Lake. We are the church in Malawi. We have representatives from the church of Malawi here today who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified, made holy, set apart. We are transformed, purified internally by a reformation of the soul. Last two points, the church universal and the church united. Paul addresses his letter to disciples. He writes to those under apostolic authority, to the local assembly, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus in spite of the wicked world in which they live. Thirdly, he writes to those who are called and who call upon the name of Christ everywhere. He says to the church, verse 2, of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Paul, moving from this local you know, application of Corinth, now extends his word of the church or his definition, description, and identity of the church universally. Who are the church? Not just one body here that gathers in our local town, but everywhere, in every place, and at every time, those who are called by God to be saints together and who, as the called ones, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul goes on in this same chapter, in verses 20 through 25, he gives us uh, some distinctives about what we hold as conviction and to be true that sets us apart no matter what age or area that we live. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The folly of what we preach, in other words, what appears foolishness to the world is actually what the saved cling to. They are called to be disciples under apostolic authority, if you will, and submit to the word of God through the drawing power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's word. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. So in their sin, these are what different societies value. But we, verse 23, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, by the way, that encompasses everyone, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Who is the church? They are the called who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. They are the ones who cling and proclaim to the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ died for my sins. I trust that his blood paid their price. And so I will worship him with my brothers and sisters who also believe that he died for them. Wherever God sees fit to gather us, we will do so in his name. We will exalt him. We will partake in the Lord's table and we will worship songs of adoration. We'll seek to grow in our sanctification together to be more further purified internally and as a church as we set our soul on the message of Christ crucified and all its implications. Those who are the church universally are all those and in every place who in stark contrast to the values of this world don't seek wisdom or signs. So that would be intellectual justification or spiritual experience. Um, so there's some people that like, I, I'd, I'd be interested in what you're saying on my terms. So justify it to me intellectually. That'd be the, on the Greek side of things. The other is like, well, until I experience like a personal, you know, subjective spirituality, then I'm not interested. Kind of two categories of what people value in the world. But, nevertheless, but in spite of this, the church is distinct and set apart, universally distinguished by the message of Christ crucified and all its implications for sinners. This has always been and always will be the fundamental mark of the church at all times and in every place from Corinth to America, from Cross Lake to Malawi and over to Ethiopia and wherever Christ is preached. This is the church universal defined by the message of the gospel. And in closing, this is the church unified. The church is unified in her submission to Jesus Christ, her Lord. Notice verse 2, how it closes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, that's a local expression, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place, 
call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, that's the church universal, both their Lord and ours, and this, I submit, is the ground for our unity. The church is fundamentally unified because we serve the same master. My grandfather, I sometimes use as an illustration, he was a Marine, but um, in World War II and fought in pretty intense situations. It was only a very short amount of time in his life, but he shared, but that shaped his identity and his coming of age experience very profoundly, right? And if you would meet someone else who served in armed services, you know, in similar circumstances in World War II, there was an immediate camaraderie there. Some of the strongest bonds are forged in times of mutual submission to a higher cause or call. Going through intense times together and standing with one another, going through difficulties, has a way of forging relationships. There is a unity in the body of Christ that is reached and, and enhanced by submitting to the same higher mission and the same Savior. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins and God saved you? Me too. You once were a rebel against him and now laid down your life and he's been transforming the things that you love so that you more and more want to serve him? Me too. This is what Christian fellowship looks like. We were both sinners, saved by grace, and now both served you. I've really been growing in my conviction to read more of the scriptures to my family on a consistent basis. Me as well. Or hold me accountable. I've been lax in that area. You see, this is fellowship. This is accountability under mutual submission to their Lord and to their Savior, to our Lord, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a powerful unity and a bond that connects the church, saints united in their submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. If everyone in a a well-organized platoon marches in lockstep with the instructions of their commander, then the problem is not disunity. If everybody has their own idea and does not respect or submit to their sovereign, to the authority, they are ineffective and self-destructive as to the call and cause. And this is why it behooves the church in her quest for unity and purpose to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, mm-hmm. to exalt the glory and the authority and, the, uh, mag- uh, and, and to magnify Jesus Christ in His sovereign lordship. Because as we do so, we become unified in our mission to serve Him and the church advances and we become an obedient and effective fighting force for the kingdom of God in the day in which we live. Perhaps, just let me close with a word of application and a final exhortation. Perhaps you have felt like you don't share much in common with others in the church. I've heard that over the years. Perhaps you have struggled in fitting in or measuring up or relating to believers in the church. And if this is the case, you are likely overlooking or underestimating the true unifying force in our lives as Christians. We often hear that phrase, look to Christ. It might become sort of a cliche or a tagline. But when we say look to Christ, what we're saying is remember the reason why we partake at his table. It's to hold ourselves accountable that the primary force, authority, and unity that binds the church together is the fact that we were once sinners condemned in our trespasses, but Christ died for us. And if we remember these things rather than our more petty and passing differences in the flesh, we begin to grow in our submission to Christ and our unity with others. So look to Christ. 
Let us look to Christ in His Word. Let us look to Christ at His table. Let us look to Christ as we hear testimony of His work from abroad. And as we do so, we look to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. His incarnation, saints, is our mediation. His righteousness is our justification. His kingdom, our earnest habitation. His word, our inspiration. His spirit is our comfort. His death is our atonement. His priesthood is our hope. His law is our rule, just to name a few. Aspects of the gospel and who Christ is, as we look to these and acknowledge them, suddenly, as the song says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Let us remember these things and more as we approach the communion table today. Let us pray in transition. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to partake, not only in the hearing of the word, but in the display of your word at this meal today. As we break bread together, this bread, that is the sustenance in the wilderness of sin supplied by the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, may it have an effect upon our souls to sanctify us, to, re- to cause us to be convicted of sin and to turn to Christ. And also may it unify us to put aside our petty differences and find common cause in the message of the gospel and in the instructions from our Savior and Lord. Thank you, Jesus that you have provided for us in your flesh and in your blood atonement. And thank you that you have provided for us by your spirit, Lord, the encouragement, comfort, and the direction that we need to grow in our calling to glorify you until you return. In your name we pray. Amen.